Hello, 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 my friends. This is Ari in the air. Welcome back to the podcast. Stoked you're here. Today, I have the fifth recording with Dr. Greg Enriquez. Dr. Greg is a professor of graduate psychology at the University, wait, James Madison University in Virginia. And he is the creator of the Unified Theory of Knowledge. He has done immense work trying to unify the field of psychology into a coherent science as opposed to a bunch of jumbled different languages and things that talk past one another. Um, It's an incredible thing. You can go to the unifiedtheoryofknowledge.org or just Google that. It'll take you there. I'll put a link in the description below as well, but you should definitely check that out. But in the meantime, this episode is awesome. We talk about wisdom. We start on wisdom, and then we get into the balance between our different centers for decision-making, including our heart and our head and our mask, essentially. Um, That's our organismic valuation center, like what we really want to do, how our ego justifies everything that's happening, and as well as how we want to be seen in the outside world. So, it's really interesting and is, uh, yeah, it's really relevant for me right now. Really relevant for me. Um, also, we get into Greg's Calm MO, which is a framework that he has developed for psychological mindfulness. Um, and he draws the distinction between meditative mindfulness, which is sitting still and being the observer and then psychological mindfulness, which is in your waking reality, trying to bring that observer into the rest of your life and have it watch over your thoughts and life. It's really super cool. I've had a hard time being a meditative mindfulness practitioner, but I think I've always had an inclination to a metacognitive perspective on my life and trying to be reflective onto what is real in me and those kinds of things. So it's nice to have that framework a bit laid out more um, robustly. So let's get right into this. If you like this show, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That helps so much. That's patreon.com slash in the air. You can support me for as little as $5 a month. Also share this show with your friends. And without further ado, my fifth talk with my close friend, one of my wise elders, and a huge influence in my life, Dr. Greg Enriquez. Enjoy.
I think I, I, I think I know what we can talk about today. Thank you for listening. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Of course. I want to talk to you about wisdom. Because I think that there's a last night as I was walking along a beautiful trail in the mountains mm-hmm. with my best friend, who is one of my partners in philosophy and thinking. And um, I asked him what he thought wisdom was. And his response was kind of funny. He says, I think you told me that it was embodied knowledge. And I said, well, that's what John Verveke told me. <laughs> so and I think that's one side of it that's one side of it I guess I'll just give you my little frame here that I and we can start there the idea that wisdom is embodied knowledge is I think true that is what wisdom is when you have it but when Verveke drops a bomb on my head that impacts my life positively, mm-hmm. that's not necessarily him embodying the knowledge. There's some sharing. There's something else happening there. Sure. And the way I think of that is almost as if Verveke is giving me knowledge that leads me towards embodiment. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like there's like, there's like one way to talk about knowledge when you have it. There's mm-hmm. another way to talk about it, like how you share it. Yep. And there's like another kind of thing, almost like as a wisdom tradition and the Stoics is something that it, like, that's the mm-hmm. placeholder that I've kind of had. And it seems to me that we have as a society lost our connection to wisdom with the death of God, to put it briefly. And it seems like wisdom is something that we just, I would almost just say inherently need. We just inherently need this. And the reason that I was listening to a JBP talk the other day and the philosopher said that if you gave a, person the job of creating a beautiful building Mm -hmm. but you didn't let them look at any building in the past Mm. the chance that they would make something genuinely beautiful is essentially zero Mm. Mm -hmm. but if you said design a beautiful building here's the entire history of human architecture (laughs) the chance that they design something beautiful doesn't go to one, but it does get a lot higher than zero. The connection I make there is that if you want to live your life beautifully, mm-hmm. but you don't know how other people have worked to live their lives beautifully, the chance that you can live yours beautifully is next to zero. Mm-hmm. And looking at how other people have tried to beautify their lives and live it with Mm -hmm. 
wisdom and virtue, the chance that you actually can live your life beautifully gets a lot higher. Mm. So I'd love to hear your ideas on what virtue is and how we can, or uh, what wisdom is and how we can, can understand it. And I would also love almost to delineate the difference between wisdom and virtue. Because mm. okay. I think that's a important distinction. And I would also love to hear from you what role you think wisdom plays in your life, my life, and the life of society and where we're going. All right. Cool. Nice layout. Let's start there. Let's start there. Um, so uh, I'll certainly agree uh, that we're uh, struggling with a bit of wisdom famine in society. Uh, and that is one way of characterizing the meaning and mental health crisis. So that if we had clarity about values, meaning, purpose, and shared relational space um, that afforded the capacity for us to flourish, well, that's pretty close to what wisdom is, and we would not be having the um, pretty pervasive sense of meaning and mental health difficulties. So I don't think relative to our power and our knowledge, I think we're out of balance when it comes to wisdom. So that's one, and I see the work that John is doing and the work that I'm trying to contribute to along those lines as a kind of meta-psychologist <laughs> and says, hey, there are wiser ways of being in the world. Yeah, I love that you posit it as a famine because that means that like wisdom is food Mm-hmm. It's certainly a framing for it. It's a, it's right. It's getting right relation to what is an ought, you know. And when you do that, you get good energy information flow that affords coherent interconnectedness within and between. And that's that's good grounding. When it's not, <laughs> the, the cells, the organ systems, the parts of the psyche, and the relationships are all like. <laughs> <laughs> trying to suck uh, the, the limited resources in defensive ways. And that's uh, going to create some vicious cycles. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. You said uh, coming into right relationship with the information that will guide you to live a beautiful life. Because it's not just, it's not just a, a knowledge it's it's a certain kind of knowledge and it's a certain kind of something that you do with the knowledge in fact that's the uh that's if we go back to the greeks they you know there's uh sophia and philosophia which mm -hmm. is love of knowledge that leads to wisdom essentially or just loving wisdom but it's the then it's the intellectual um orientation really a logos orientation to cultivate knowledge that affords us understanding from say a propositional structural architecture and says oh this is what is from a particular way and then if we have clarity about what is then we can orient towards wisdom okay at least that if we don't have any clarity about what is if we have complete misconceptions about what is it's going to be very hard uh, so the knowledge is a necessary element 
and thus a wisdom orientation is close to knowledge, but it is not sufficient, certainly for the whole of wisdom. That's, you have to also have phrenesis. Phrenesis is the embodied, practical, doing, being, becoming aspect of, of the embodied side of knowledge, of being. And, and you look at individuals, many individuals who find a path towards wise living, either in relationship to themselves and the world and others, loving, you know, freedom. And you just sort of, wow, that person embodies wisdom in some way. Mm -hmm. And they then live an example of the way they operate in the world. And, and then it's like, wow, something about what they do coheres and affords growth and possibilities and movement towards goodness, truth, and beauty at some level. It's hard to put into words what that is. And even if maybe if you ask them, they wouldn't necessarily know. But that's phrenesis. That's the embodiment of, of being that way. So um, wisdom certainly can be your, your distinction when you hear embodied knowledge. And John is kind of bringing those together. And because John's recursive relevance realization really affords a point of quality that intersects with many different domains and it affords him in a possibility to create fascinating linkages between things that tend to get dichotomized. And he's wonderful at that. And that's where we get a lot of our John wisdom from. <laughs> okay, so I love what you said there, the right relationship to the ought. It's almost like the knowledge is the is, like how things are. We can just like kind of learn that. And then the wisdom actually is like the crystallization that points us in the right direction. That's, that's the you talk frame. Okay, so... Let's make a distinction between wisdom and virtue. Okay. Um, now, uh, this is a complicated relation. Uh, certainly, if we just go with basic uh, sort of Greek philosophy, which is, you know, the virtue ethics, which is where a lot of this work is done, uh, is, you know, virtue can be thought there are a number of different core cardinal virtues. Okay. And sometimes wisdom is defined as one of those. All right. So that, you know, courage, uh, prudence, fortitude, there are a lot of other, you know, kinds of ways of, of being effective, essentially, um, and being both having knowledge and being skillful, uh, be having a virtuoso performance, you know, that's, that's a, having knowledge and skill in a particular domain, and then especially domain that leads to good moral ethical outcomes. So then we say, oh, that those are good, those are virtues. When we have more of those and people doing them skillfully, you know, that's what we want to value. Uh -huh. um, they often are uh, articulated, at least uh, from Aristotle, in terms of balances. So there's essentially sin or unlacking virtue in the extremes, and they often find your capacity to balance between dialectics. So virtue is often found in the effective middle way between problematic extremes. So they operate from a dialectic um, but then this issue of what wisdom is in relationship to virtue, it's often characterized as the master virtue. Okay. So many people would then basically drop wisdom up here. And then the subcategories of virtue, okay, would be whereby really the it's sort of the mother virtue. Uh -huh. um, and so then you really get into sort of ultimate meta virtue or you know, the beyond uh -huh. architecture to find wisdom. Um, 
again with Aristotle, he talked about eudaimonia. And ultimately, he achieves the frame for eudaimonia in relationship to means-ends relation. Okay, Means-end relation. What do we mean there? Well, you're doing shit through means to get certain kinds of ends. Okay, And then he, he extracts that way of thinking to then abstract yourself to the ultimate end. Like what would be, it's not the instrument itself. This gets into like the being for being its, itself and, and being like being oriented towards the ultimate good, true beauty thing that there you wouldn't do anything else for. And this is called the eudaimonic ultimate end point. Okay. Which he then basically put as the idea of deity in relation. And I place as the elephant sun God. So the elephant sun God is the icon that would be sort of the ultimate representation of goodness, truth, and beauty. And it's antithesis of evil. Right? So you just kind of create a and that at least creates a particular architecture. And then you say, oh, what does it mean to be then that's in right relationship to ought is having my soul and spirit in right relationship to the ultimate icon of eudaimonia, the ultimate flourishing, the ultimate endpoint. That's your ultimate concern to use a Paul Tillich frame. And that affords you then, if your soul and spirit is in right relation, then you're in right relation to ought. And basically, in John's term, you project a divine double. That's kind of like your idealized. This, I have this little baton of energy information, right? That's what I'm running around with a little baton of energy information. It's doing work, effort, and having consequences, both inside my system and between the system, across time and into the future. The argument can be is that you can basically project ways I would be in the world that would afford movement of myself and the people around me and the waves of ripple effect toward that. And the idealized representation of that is right relationship to ought in, in the logos, in the Sophia frame, meaning I'm mm -hmm. describing the architecture. Mm -hmm. Yes. I love this idea of the, like the, uh, the, the ideal. This is so so interesting um as a kid who grew up playing video games i think of like on the racing video games when you mm -hmm. make your best lap time yeah. now you have the ghost car that goes around the track so every move you make you can see whether you're faster or slower than your ideal right is your double the divine double right this is your divine double Perfect. That's so interesting. I also love what you said that wisdom is like the mother virtue because I would almost say, yeah, it's wise for me to know what virtue is at all. It is, <laughs> I agree with that. Right? Like it's wise to know what virtue is and also what the virtues are. Like the fact that I can list the cardinal virtues is a wise thing because then that makes my divine double a bit faster. It, it makes my ghost car a bit faster. It at least gives you the frame of the car to begin with. <laughs> I mean, if you, right? Let's start with the fucking idea that there's a car. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm very passionate about this. My kids go through, you know, uh, K through 12 and essentially don't get a course on either emotion 
Uh, that's one thing I bitch about. And they don't get any articulation of ethics. So they have no idea that there's actually ideas about what ethics and virtue are. They, they get some exposure to like character education, but it's essentially be a good person because we all know that's the right way to be. And that's fucking it. And then they get some notions about be a good, you know, but why, you know, why, what are those and why? You know, we go to Aristotle, he's got virtue ethics. We can go to Kant, he's got a, you know, the categorical imperative and we don't need to learn deontological ethics, but um, versus consequentialism. But Jesus, what does it mean to be a good person and have some courses and reflections so that people start a knowledge architecture that raises the issue of what is virtue? And maybe I want to cultivate my life in that direction. (laughs) Yeah, that's like, yeah, that would be like a good part of our education. That'd be, that's not a bad idea. But actually, our school systems essentially, you know, punt on that enormously. Uh, they avoid that. Yeah, if I want to, I want to stack some other things onto this shit fire that you've just lit about our educational system and the lack of emotional awareness, education. Um, my intuition is that the reason that structures of authority, we can say the educational system, don't go to great lengths to make ethical education Uh is because they weaponize the idea of a good person Uh for control. That's certainly one of the great dangers of it, 100%. Because the idea of a good person is basically something that we get beat over the head with. Right, with a blunt shovel kind of frame. Um, I've been working with nonviolent communication a lot lately, and Mm. Rosenberg has a pretty brief shtick that he says frequently, which is, Depression is what we get for being good little boys and girls. <laughs> right? Depression. It's complicated, but yeah, that's certainly uh, the, 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 you can, um, the, the navigation of this is very tricky and we fucked it up. And a lot of times we punt and avoid it. And in some ways that's good because it's such a dangerous uh, concept. Yeah. And what I make of that is essentially that we will feel empty and we will feel empty and depressed. I don't want to get too buried in the clinical idea of depression. I know it's a very complex thing. Um, but we'll feel empty if we just merely follow the path that is laid out before us as to the authority structures that we grow up with, whether that be our parents or our teachers or our society at large, if we just merely do what keeps us from being punished by them and keeps our stream of reward coming from them, if we bounce between those two poles and like stay in what we talk about as quote, good, being a good person. Totally. No, we, that will empty us out. That will gut us. Totally. And I felt that in my own life. Yeah. I and felt that in my very life. very clear as to why, based on human psychology. So 
we should know that the human structure is going to exactly why does that happen? We should all be very clear. Let's get, that's the outcome, let's get that's, super fucking clear on that. Okay. So as a kid, you're basically you the first thing you do is your pre your pre-conventional justification system is just to learn. And kids don't fight against this initially. They'll learn, hey, what's the rules of this thing? Okay. Uh, but then what happens is then you grow from what's called a social actor and concrete justifier, which is a kid, but you're, you're a little primate, you're running around, and then you just learn the little, you just designed to download what mom and dad say. And when you're from two to eight, that's okay. Okay. All right. And, and then here's what the, and then, but the way that structure then gets built, okay, is crucial for what then happens when you become an actual agent, meaning you shift into a human person that actually has self-conscious justification in the field. And you do start doing that around eight early kids. And then adolescence is the emergence of this particular structure. Okay? Um, and then fundamental developmental task is the proper balance between the organismic valuing process here, okay? the core heart seeking system that's from within and the balance with the other relational world and the conventional justifications that legitimize is in awe in normal everyday society. Okay. So that's like, there's two systems in us, or you mentioned three, but let's just talk about these two for well, a you second. have your persona, you have your ego and you have your experiential self. Okay. So the experiential self is the intuitive heart. You have your ego, which comes online first as a as a pre-conventional concrete justifier. Mom said this, dad said this. I'm at two, I start learning my words and sentences. And by six, I can justify sort of what I'm doing. And all, virtually all cultures start to treat you as a little justifier when you're about six. And then from six to 16, you know, and then how long we extend development is really you get socialized into becoming a human person agent that's self-conscious and can justify then you have an ego and an experiential self and the emergence of the persona, which is clarity about what your identity is in the social world and the waves that your actions have on other people and how they weigh back on you. So persona, ego, experiential self. Wow. <clears throat> your, the depth of your knowledge never ceases to amaze me, Greg, and it's very helpful. So to basically to like put this into the, the Rosenberg frame of like depression is what we get for being good little boys and girls. Depression is what we get for being out of balance with our, that, that heart part of ourselves, that part of, we make our decisions because of us, because of our own internal motivations. That is exactly right. It's out of balance in that regard, hundred percent. And we are giving too much credence to what other people think of us and to our egoic justifications. Right. What it basically happens is if you're, especially if you're a conventional, somewhat socially anxious, potentially neurotic, self-critical person. Okay. What does that mean? It means that your, your negative affect system doesn't want to upset things. It's reactive to things. And then you get self-conscious, which is like, Oh shit. So other people are going to judge me. So then I manage my persona and regulate what I do for their judgments, for the, for the mm -hmm. environment. Okay. And then what people do is either they're abused into that. And then it's like, Oh my God, you get abused into that. So that's not too terribly surprising. I mean, other people judge you, they bully you, you know, you got the alcoholic father or whatever. 
So there's external real events. And many other people also project, and they so want de the desire, is that they build the critic, the interject, the internal critic, which is the superego portion of the ego that breaks off and internalizes all the standards to regulate the id experiential self and says, fuck, you better do, if you want the cookies from society, you better be this fucking way. You want to be a good boy. I'm going to now, I'm going to break out a little internal critic stick. And now I'm going to, I'm going to tap hard on the wrists of the little experiential system to guide it through punishment into getting the, creating the persona to get the reward. And then if you do that, you're going to kill the experiential self, the organismic valuing process, and you're going to end with an empty soul. God, that's tragedy. It's just tragedy. It's all over the place. I mean, it's happened all over the fucking place. It's crazy how clear that is for you and likely so many other people in the human development psychological thing that that somehow this still is not trickled into any kind of best practice educationally or parentally this is just well this is my fucking frustration with the problem of psychology okay so like we got it we can't figure out a way to get harmonized inside the field of expertise uh -huh. so that we can actually have a clear message in relationship to that so that actually it delivers with fidelity into the populace so that they can metabolize it and then utilize it for clarity. Instead, uh, we all have 6 billion fucking different languages and then spew forth parts of language into the society who lacks any comprehensive capacity. And so they grab parts of the fucking thing and jam this in together with some Lego Frankenstein monster of making sense out of the world. Sorry, I have to laugh at the idea that psychology is a Lego Frankenstein. Monster. I mean, that's what happens to people from the outside. I mean, and in the inside, it's all. But the fact of the matter is you get me and John together and then you sync up and you're like, oh, well, fucking a cognitive science and a unified psychology actually have perfect resonance. And then totally. if we can do and then we harmonize that resonance and then we say to people, hey, your kids have an organismic valuing process. OK, a little justifying ego system comes online. There are particular ways to relate to the attachment system and the justification system across developmental structures from a social actor where he's just justifying until he becomes an agent. And then when he becomes an agent, the negotiation of the persona, the agent, and their heart, their experiential self, and the relational world is absolutely fundamental. If they create coherence between their body, their heart, their mind, and the relational world, uh -huh. you will see them fulfilled and they will be able to seek They'll have effective safety seeking that affords them to feed their soul. If you judge the shit out of them and everybody's defensive and crazy, they will basically internalize that shit and become crazy themselves. And then the soul will be famished and then you'll get neurotic, depressive, anxiety, self-consciousness, dissatisfaction, and angst. Yep. I think I'm mired in some of that, to be totally honest. <laughs> Sounds I, like a little bit, you know. But that's, you know, it's, uh, it, listen, actually, uh, there's no way through life without that. Okay. So let's be clear. There's dimensions of that. Uh, but unfortunately, we are living, we are living through a time relative to our potential knowledge and, and you know, wisdom potential that there's way too much of this famine and, and angst and struggle. Yeah. So <clears throat> I just want to back up just a little bit here because It's important to recognize that 
the way we groom our children into this nightmare is both through judgment and punishment, but also judgment and reward. And I think that, uh, you know, I've recently started reading a book by Alfie Cohn called mm-hmm. Punished by Reward. Totally. Mm-hmm. The thing that nonviolent communication talks about that I think attempts to address this Mm -hmm. disharmony is when you're dealing with anyone and you want to make a request of them to have their behavior be different, you have to ask yourself two questions. One, Mm -hmm. how is their behavior? How is the behavior I would like for them to display different than how they're currently behaving? And two, more importantly, what would I like their motivation for that change in behavior to be? Mm-hmm. Because if you ask that second question, it sounds to me that you're actually addressing that heart, that experiential self part of them. That's right. Carl Rogers calls this the organismic valuing process. Mm. Okay? And, and then it, so it grows like a flower. And his argument is, is that without judgment, it will seek the, the optimal um, thing. I, there's debate about that, but, it, but, but certainly you want to really definitely attend to it and you want to be in right relationship with that thing. If you, if you don't ask that second question and ju- you will sh- potentially shut that down and create tension, getting clarity about that thing in relation, in relationship to ego, in relationship to the persona and then the re- dyadic or group relation is absolutely key honing that i mean the humanistic tradition is very um you know is is rich in its uh articulation of this okay so as parents and as partners in general is this little two question thing sufficient what are other ways that we can think about this how we because we are constantly in the network of our lives. We are constantly trying to affect each other and have our needs met and all of this thing. So how best can we communicate with each other so that we honor this experiential self Mm -hmm. in each other and ourselves? Mm -hmm. And then how do I do it for myself? What are the most important things that I do for myself? Right. Because I'm living in a circumstance where I am interacting with children who love me every day between the ages of, of infant and five years old, and they really respect me. And so, and I constantly see the importance, the trajectory of the world and their lives based on every single interaction and how important my words are and how important my energy is and what the whole thing. So I love this idea of being punished by reward. And I'm not, I don't want to be like a little treat seeker. These are, they are not my fucking Mm -hmm. pets. These children are not my pets and I'm not trying to groom them to please me. How do I honor their hearts, their own organismic Mm-hmm. valuation. How do I do that with my partners? And then also, how do I do that with myself? 
Give me some wisdom here. <laughs> well, we have to decide to see where we can channel knowledge into phrenesis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, give me some examples of when you feel like you've done it well with yourself. Like, what, when do you see that? When it feels like it's done well, either with self or others. Oof. Let's get your double car going on this. <laughs> yeah, let's get my ghost car. Let's get my best lap time. Let's, let's get just, your lap time. On let's this. set my best lap time here. <sighs> you know, it's it's so interesting. It's so interesting that you say that. What is my best lap time? I feel like this is one of the areas that, you know, from the outside, I think people look at my life and they say, wow, you really have done, you know, whatever you want. Really? And I'm like, hmm, to some extent I have. When I go outside and play, it's pretty much that's that's me. So maybe in some way that that is one of the areas that I really have let my experiential self do my thing. At the same time, I can acknowledge the ways in which my desire for approval, fear of abandonment, and desire to fit in, be impressive, all of these different things have played into me coming, becoming an extreme sports athlete in three sports. Yeah. Um, I just think of those as sweet wounds. Fair enough, mm-hmm. you know, like. <laughs> um, I think recently it has been the most painful thing maybe that I've ever done to decide to end a relationship that I don't think is working Mm. and to have to walk away from that. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Um, It still hurts to think about that. Of course. Um, And I don't know. I find myself constantly wanting to like reassure her that it's not her fault that I just have to like, that I finally have to listen to my soul that I have to listen to my heart. I told Jordan Hall the other day that my soul is getting louder that at 32 years old, like I think I used to be able to just like kind of glaze it over and just like go with the flow. And now it's like, if I, if I'm a good little boy or if I'm a good little boy, I'm going to, I feel depressed. I feel empty. And so I think that's currently my best lap time because it's so hard and it hurts. And I don't want to, I want to recant my decision every day. I wake up just like wanting to like recant it. And I know that's like a compulsive part of me. I think that as I think about this, I give myself some credit that there is some wisdom here. Because one of the things that I realized was that there was motivations in the relationship that weren't from my heart. Mm. And when I saw those, I, it was almost like I realized the whole thing was fucking tainted. 
And then there was no way for me to like do work inside the relationship and conflict resolution and different things to like uh-huh. do the work inside the relationship when the whole thing had been stained with this fear. Uh-huh. It had been stained with this expectation. Uh-huh. And so I think I, my best lap time is stepping away from that in amidst just incredible pain uh, to try to align my motivations. And what is your soul motivation? Wholeness. I'd like to feel whole. And I don't feel whole. And I've seen in the ways that in my past relationships and so much of my life, I've tried to patch myself together with people and activities and things. And I'd like to be whole. I'd like to be centered because I have on a number of occasions in my life seen my own potential terrifying a terrifying thing to see right like i've seen some scary shit but man that's likely the scariest thing i've ever seen and the continued under actualization of that potential is just gnawing at me. Mm. And the things that keep me from doing that are my fears and my wounds Mm. and other people's, which which manifest as like managing other people's emotions, Mm. AKA my, projected expectations of myself from them. Mm. Mm. It looks like withholding my truth. It looks like confusion. I experience it as confusion. Mm. Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I sort of heard two things that maybe they're wholeness and potential. Hmm. I kind of think of it as one, but yeah, because yeah, I kind of think of that as one. I I just make this assumption that if I was whole, if I could just air quotes, heal my Uh wounds and face my shit and Uh face my fears Uh that Self-actualization and Uh potentiation would just emerge. Uh It would emerge. So the other day, my best friend, recently married, they underwent a big move from Hawaii back to the mainland. Uh They bought a nice sprinter van, have been traveling around, but that sense of ungroundedness 
They don't know where they want to live. He's ready to buy a house, but he doesn't know where they want to start a family, but they're not sure like where and when. And, and it's like all this confusion. And he basically calls me and he says that he's feeling like time pressure to make a bunch of decisions. And I think the wisdom that I tried to regurgitate was to focus on setting up the situation in a way that the right decisions would emerge as opposed to focusing on making decisions, Mm. you know, like go to therapy, go outside, find yourself a rental, make sure you have like your physical needs met and your, you know, stay engaged. And, and then like the decision of where you want to live and when everything is right, will just fall into place naturally. I make that connection. The connection there is that just keep going towards wholeness and the everything else will fall into place. It's almost like, it's almost like the advice that I would just give myself is like, if you just like listen to your heart, if you stay with that experiential center, Uh keep that thing super in balance, right? Uh Because his like, you know, the self expectations he has of how he'll care for his wife and provide direction in their relationship is so real. Sure. And fair enough. That's not, you know, like, and now we're talking about a balance between all of these different factors and not just a, not just a only your heart thing. So I don't know. Does that make, have we made some kind of Lego Frankenstein ghost car? I mean, well, certainly I think that the, uh, I mean, you know, I certainly would see what resonates. Um, I think that we're, to me, the relationship with the heart is absolutely key. Okay. Um, one thing I, I wanted to point out to that is that if you have the idea of, oh, well, if I just get right relationship to my heart, everything will naturally fall in place. I'll be whole. I'll reach all my potential and everything will sort of fall into place. That may need some reflection. Love it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I hear that. I hear that. And I see it. It is. I, I think I, you know, the Hegelian part of me just wants to like pendulum over. I'm like, I see the lack in that part in my life. And so I'm just like, no, like you gotta like, like whether you gotta like fast the other Mm -hmm. parts of your head that is like having people's intimate expectations of you. So near You know, I, I guess, but there's a question I have here, which is like, if we say that the education system doesn't give us this kind of thing and it, it overemphasizes our egoic or societal um, 
pressures of how we make decisions and how we are air quote, good boy, bad boy. How do we recover from that? Because I think you're right. Like I, I totally see that we need this balance. You know, Jordan Peterson talks about you know, the idea that you don't need to think about other people's opinions of you is totally bullshit. Like we are all in like, it doesn't work like that. Good luck with that. Yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> so it's Everybody like, else's organismic value process is going to start moving away from your ass. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so to be able to hold all of these things in right relationship, I see is critically important. I guess for me personally, I see a lack in my life and I, you know, like, Mm-hmm. you're one of my wise elders <laughs> you are and you know i had a long talk with Viveki about coming of age mm-hmm. ritual and like mm-hmm. how to do it and so you know as before we started recording i told you about the you know my big trip that i have some sense of disappointment around that right. it was like a time for me to come of age and i didn't do it right mm-hmm. and so And I think many of the people listening Mm -hmm. likely are having to reparent themselves in this way. How do we come into right relationship with our heart, our head, and the external world? So I think we need some field medicine. Mm -hmm. I think we need some field medicine. Well, certainly. I mean, that's, a, you know, I agree. And, and that's kind of the whole, whole point of you talk and, and the meaning crisis and everything else, at least start that process of like getting people aware. Right. So I often talk about awareness, acceptance and active change. And often the first is just sort of awareness. And and the second is acceptance. <laughs> OK, um, so the, 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 that's two thirds of it. Okay, it's let's talk. Often. Let's talk. I, I think I have the awareness. Let's talk about mm-hmm. acceptance. Well, right. I think you do. You're get, so that's kind of narrative. You do have a, a rich awareness. There's actually shifts in awareness that afford, I think, are part of active change, but are useful. Okay, to at least be aware of as possible. So there's awareness in relationship to understanding. Okay, so like I can see the parts of this thing. Okay, so like, oh, I can see that I have certain needs and I have certain abandonment and then I put pressure and I internalize and I try to portray and then that leaves me feeling empty, even though I caused, you know, it was actually propelled me to be skillful. And now I'm struggling with that. That's a great narrative, you know, of awareness, of intellectual awareness. Okay, so that's yeah, that's a good map. That's what I call dumping the pieces out of the puzzle. Um. There's also a, a sort of a more process-oriented awareness um, that shifts the focus from sort of really, oh, hey, I got to have my sort of Sophia understanding, you know, it's like, oh, this is the knowledge, okay, to just awareness of being itself and awareness for itself in a particular way. So 
So this is the shift from the egoic narrator, like, oh, what the hell's going on, into the adverbial witness function, mm -hmm. the seer. The capacity to live as the awareness, as awareness, the capacity to live in full experience of awareness and feel fulfilled by that and to cohere across dimensions of awareness is a really cool thing. And by cool, you mean healing. I'll put it this way. You, when you're in the mode of the egoic understanding, what you're trying to do is gathering understanding so you can then justify what's happened and then justify better ways of being and, and then fix it so that you're now reaching your potential. Uh -huh. Super important mode. Okay. But not the only mode of awareness. Uh-huh. There's another mode of awareness of being behind your life and seeing it from an outside perspective and letting your life just be part of the universe. Right. And, ex and really expanding, right, in and out. It's just like all of a sudden, you, my uh, friend Rob Scott, uh, who's a, sort of had an enlightenment experience. And, you know, you may, I think, you know, he calls it his, he created a fundamental shift where something afforded the opportunity for him to drop into core awareness and really would basically find his heart and the world and being itself in relationship to that awareness as, you know, almost living an, exper an experiential spiritual existence there, which I think is a very, very powerful. Uh -huh thing sort of uh, the the beingness of awareness mm -hmm. itself is really okay so when i he i had certainly you know psychotherapy uh, i'll do a little sophia on this in the sense that um, when i did i had some insights around wisdom energy um, back in october okay uh, in fact i've talked about it at the stoa and a few other places um, the you talk system evolved to connect wisdom and energy together. Energy literally as like energy, the beginning of the universe, the capacity to do work in physics, and it evolves and intersects with wisdom in a particular structure, like, like created an architecture, as it were, and then dropped into the architecture. Okay. I shifted from Sophia building the wisdom, loving wisdom, knowledge to then say, oh, I can into phrenesis in the moment and not even phrenesis that's adaptive, but phrenesis of awareness itself. Phrenesis being like an embodiment, an embodiment of the awareness itself. Yes.
And I texted my friend, Rob Scott, and I said, I am loving being without memory or desire. Memory being past and desire being future. Tell me more, break, double click on that. I am loving being without memory or desire. You are loving the experience of awareness in the present. That's a fulfilling experience. So in some sense, it seems like that's the awareness that actually takes you into the acceptance. Because that sounds like acceptance. It positions you in a totally different relation. Uh And that, you know, is crucial in relationship to uh-huh. Uh-huh. Mm. Mm. it sounds like it repositions you from the struggler who has to make all of these decisions and it's so important and it's time bound i think the advice that i was just referring to the idea that if you seek the wholeness that the decisions will naturally emerge. But I think that what you're saying, what I'm hearing is that the seeking of the wholeness intellectually is not enough. for those decisions to emerge anyway. You actually have to have the zoomed out awareness as awareness. I would almost say to like relieve pressure off of the system to allow those heart-centered or balanced decisions to emerge. Yes, it's even sort of deeper than that in some ways, in the sense that there's one mindset that's really, that's trying to solve problems. It's like, hey, what's the outcome? What's the good? What's the, what's our valued states of being? How do I understand what is? How do I get in right relationship to all? It's really important uh-huh. mindset. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. Awareness as itself is a different place. 
And so what is the practice here? Is this a recommendation for a meditation practice? Well, I mean, a, a certain meditation, the Eastern traditions uh, have their own path and relationship to this. And generally meditation affords you that. If you take like John's meditation course, yeah. okay, the, you'll notice it's, con, it's really honing the muscle of the observing witness function, the adverbial mm -hmm. conscious framer, uh -huh. and then utilizing that and showing the skilled, virtuous capacities of moving that around. Okay. And that's very much related to that. And that is, so that's one wisdom tradition that is like, yeah, the practice is being able to adopt this mindset, okay, to step into the mindset. Um, in some ways, my friend Rob Scott's approach is actually in some ways more direct, although it's actually, um, it certainly takes some practice, right? But, but basically, for me, what I will say is through, I had some access to this, and I am psychologically mindful, so I was able to develop pretty quickly. But I created a space through my, Rob calls it the fundamental shift. Okay. So the space that you were in, in terms of, well, how do I fix this, is the, sort of the everyday space mm -hmm. of the self-ego person how do I live my best life? How do I understand what's happening? Okay. Uh, it's beliefs about what is and ought to be and our attachment to those and our working through those. Uh -huh. And that's our normal mode of being. And it's a necessary mode of being clearly. <laughs> the struggler. You got to have, absolutely. You got to have a solve, problem seeker, solver. You know, fuck, you don't do that. You're in deep trouble. Yeah. Okay. But the framing generally is, oh, you know, if I fail to solve my problems, I then suffer. I don't reach my potential. I don't get the outcomes that I want. I, I haven't achieved. I haven't gotten in touch with my heart. I haven't done this. Okay. You're quite vulnerable. Okay. To basically creating outcomes, judging self and outcomes, uh -huh. always shifting to the next outcome, always trying to solve problems in particular ways. And, and then, you know, right. Um, his, solution as i understand it or at least in my own is to basically all of a sudden shift from sort of the egoic mode and even experiential mode of organismic valuing into this really raw state of awareness because isness it's really phenomenological isness just some collective experience of being in the world i mean mm -hmm. i mean collective like collective like your body somehow fucking collects it together. it's like all of a sudden here i am sitting in a fucking chair yeah. <laughs> right but it's really just the felt unevaluative emergent essence of awareness uh -huh. experiential awareness right and what he figured out was he could cultivate essentially a spiritual sacred love of that. Let's double click on the spiritual sacred love of that. What does that do? Is that the fundamental shift that he's referring to? In, 
that's the way I would describe it, you know, but uh, I mean, it, it's essentially the awareness and then the experience of valuing that awareness mm -hmm. as awareness, sort of the intersection of is and ought beauty, <laughs> just, and what that does, is, I mean, for me, at least one thing that it does is just like, oh my God, like, if that gets cultivated, then all experience has then the potential. And maybe if you're in that frame of mind, essentially all experience has the potential for this felt sense of awe and beauty. Mm -hmm. I love this. And... I can see it's critical import. I think that my head would want to put these things as nodes mm -hmm. that like modes that we switch between. Yep. But I, also am thinking of it more a bit like you know to like a, a transcend and include it's like something a bit foundational i guess my I see the importance here. I guess now, how do I have this in balance? What's the balance like between my organismic valuation and this cosmic awareness? Yeah. Um, so uh, the yeah, wonderful, beautiful intuition, and certainly this is where I arrive meaning, wow, that's a node or a mode you know, that gets added to sort of the, a repertoire. You know, and so that's uh, the other, at an ecology of practice level then, what I started to do then was to then activate this particular kind of mindful presence in the cultivation of it. Uh -huh. Okay. And was that in so, your daily just like in waking life? Pretty much for me, it's in waking life. So I, I'm a psychological mindfulness practitioner rather than a meditative mindfulness practitioner. Uh-huh. Okay. So meditative mindfulness is like the practices that John took you through. And, you know, some people get up in the morning, spend two hours going through um, the, the uh, you know, which I, which if it's disciplined and, you know, everyone's got to find their path could be brilliant. I, I've never been super inclined in that direction myself. Neither I. Um, um, but my, it's at the same time, my kind of mindfulness is essentially always online and always exploring, you know, um, and growing and in constantly tracking events through multiple perspectival structures. Uh-huh. And uh, 
So now through Rob, I had access to this a bit as a frame of awareness. Rob's frame afforded me the capacity to have this as a stream of awareness that I can quickly find myself in in particular ways, Uh which I find to be really helpful. Uh-huh. I mean, and really, actually, that's not even the right word, because the, the whole nature of it is, well, it's kind of like a line of wisdom energy. I mean, you should kind of like, okay, when I'm there, now is it's the infinite now, it's not about doing anything, it's just uh-huh. grabbing beauty out of the universe, for its own sake. Uh-huh. And what's more to be said than that? You know? Yeah. It's but to transcend I, the notion of fixing or better or good right or... it's a, it, it just it, it's just this pure experience and then the valuation of it in relation is sort of like a to, to me if i just sort of and you, know, you have to use words for this but basically if my organismic valuing process you know and sort of that's just the shining of the light of the experiential self the valence thing to give me the capacity to shift into mind too that's the technical term of subjective conscious experience of awareness and being holy fuck, you know, it's like, um, and normally that's just, we experience that just as a tool, you know, the normal frame is like, we see through these lenses to see what is, see what ought to be. And then, you know, behaviorally invest in pragmatic instruments to build shit that keeps us from dying and injured and gets us laid and gets us uh, to reach our potential, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, fuck, you know, <laughs> great, <laughs> which is totally reasonable. And, and so in his system, he calls that identity shifting. So your fundamental shift is the affordance of the cultivation of this space. Uh, and though, and I would certainly argue that, in, that to the extent that you're able to cultivate this space, that affords you huge amounts of freedom. It affords you mm-hmm. lots of different aspects of, mm-hmm. um, first off, while you're in it, that's value in and of self. You know? And the other thing is, is that it creates the right relationship with the doing problem-solving mind. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, mm. if you're just in doing problem solving then the whole basic thing is hey i have to win this race like my <laughs> double car and i need mm-hmm. to be able to blah 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 and, and the standards and the outcomes and the judgments and the reach potential and the, this oh my god and this trauma prevented me from doing this and mm-hmm. just all of the injuries and failures and expectations and demands and the press of the doing mind you know mm sits in the consciousness in a particular kind of way it aches for oh if only and that if often that if only never comes mm-hmm. and there's a option of cultivating your awareness to be able to zoom out to see oh look the struggler is racing against his ghost car and he's trying so hard to be faster than the ghost car in any best lap Mm. And it's almost what the moments of that I've touched this or that I've gotten close to this. It's almost the awareness and the it's almost the awareness that this struggler racing this ghost car is the universe that is mm-hmm. that is existence unfolding mm-hmm. totally 
Okay, so. So but that's the expansion, right? The self yes. and oneness with the universe. All of a sudden you get a grip on self, get a grip on the universe, have all of a sudden this interesting juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. John talks about that in terms of the ontonormativity of transcendent moment. Okay, so I think to wrap this up, I see, I see the I see the circle here. I want to double click on what you said about the difference between being a psychological mindfulness practitioner and a meditative mindfulness practitioner. I think that right now in the dialogue, my uh, meditation gets so much play. Mm -hmm. And for me, I have had a very difficult time sitting still and being quiet every day as a mm-hmm. as a practice mm-hmm. i am very inclined to want to have an outside perspective and to practice my awareness in every moment that's something that i can that i want to grow in mm-hmm. and so there was a part of me that felt relief when you said that, that I was like, oh my God, this is actually like, you know, like if I'm not meditating, I'm not like doing the work. Oh no, I can be doing the work in this other way if that one doesn't suit me. Sure. Mm -hmm. So I want to, yeah, I want to zoom in on that. Sure. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So what I mean by uh, meditative mindfulness, as I said, it's the focus on the interior observing witness function and then all of the practices to essentially cultivate that muscle. So you, uh-huh. you sit, you manage, you attend to your experiential self's attention, what flies across the monkey mind justifier, and you constantly bring it back. You afford the opportunity for interoception, interception through perspectival shifting and then presence and then but you have to practice that and that's met that's normal mindfulness meditation is why people sit <laughs> you know and, and drop out i never did that i mean i never did that what did i do um i enter through the ego okay so what do i mean by that i enter through the narrator okay? i enter through sophia through the justificatory narrative of hey i want to understand what the fuck is going on propositionally Right. So the Tao says, hey, the Tao's not the Tao. All right. What they mean by that is you put this in propositional language. You have, you know, you're not dancing with what it is that we're after, which is a perspectival, participatory, phrenesis way of being in the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm trained as a scientist. I'm after logos. You know, I'm actually, I want to fucking, I want to get a geometry of relation in the world that I can specify with precision. Okay. So that's a, there's a propositional energy in me uh, through justification, which many people are like, well, Jesus, that's dangerous, which in some ways it is because it tries to kind of create a particular kind of logical authority often where you can't find any. But the beauty of what I stumbled on is actually I figured out psychology in a particular way that afforded me the proper logical relations. (laughs) So that's, that's good. It's like, oh, good. You know, we can actually bring a logos to psyche uh, that affords clarity rather than, oh, well, you know, fucking psyche. <laughs> no, it's actually, 
so there's a psyche logos marriage in where I'm operating from, you know? Um, and so I sit, that's why, you know, start with the fucking tree of knowledge and exterior scientific articulation of the unfolding of energy and a matter into life to mind a culture. Uh, and the mathematical analysis of that to put myself in right relation, i.e. scientifically with the exterior world. I mean, that's where I'm coming from. Um, so for me, psychological mindfulness then is about bringing to bear a Sophia wisdom, the, 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 a, a sage narrator that affords you the opportunity to connect intrapsychically and intersubjectively through shared narrative. And certainly if you do it authoritatively, you know, in a particular way, you've obviously done it wrong. <laughs> this is not authoritative, but it is through comprehensive understanding you know, and love, but it's through a, a, there's a narrative function to it. Mm -hmm. So that's what I relate to. I'm relating to my, go with narrator even as i sometimes wave them goodbye like when i was doing wisdom energy i was like well that was a great i dropped into the full-fledged experiential so much so that my normal even still active psychological narrator was just basically like hey i'm i'm along for this fucking ride this is just nothing but glorious wisdom energy mm -hmm. <laughs> i'm sign me up too and that's what i narrowed it down to the two fucking words energy and wisdom. So I'm in right relationship between Big Bang and my concept of God, and I'm living it. <laughs> and I'm saying, you know, that's, that's right relation. It isn't all, you know, and then I could tap out. But, but notice I actually even got there. I mean, I get there myself because I'm a theorist. I get, you know, I'm after knowledge and it's like getting there and then affording the logos to create right relation with isness and then dropping into the experience. So for me, psychological mindfulness is about, is about seeking the propositional network of understanding that affords its clarity in relation. And so that operates off of a different mode than meditative mindfulness journey. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's very helpful. So okay. I'll, I'll say one last thing and then we'll just sort of, so in the practice of it, so remember, I think we yeah. talked about this some and the fundamental practice that I developed, you know, and, and this fits with Rob, although Rob's stuff affords me the opportunity for a new relationship with awareness itself. Um, but so what I developed as a psycho, psychological mindfulness is calm bomb, all right? That's the calm MO. We talked about that some, mm -hmm. right? That's the cultivation of a metacognitive observer, this position of the sage, to use John's term, okay? outside your stream of consciousness that would afford a wise understanding okay, that's outside your mindless, psychologically mindless reactivity. So most people get bumped, they drop into psychological mindless reactivity. I don't want this to happen. I do want this to happen. I get controlling, insistent, critical, rejecting, defensive, and mm -hmm. irritable. I hate this and let me escape it and control the shit that's causing it. Mm -hmm. That's the normal, okay? Then I, you drop into metacognitive observer as your modus operandi. And then the attitude, the psychological attitude that I was curious instead of closed, learning to accept, which by the way, the whole awareness acceptance that I just walked you through ad, adds enormously to that capacity. Mm -hmm. Loving compassion towards self and other and motivated toward valued states of being in the short and long term. This is getting clear about what is good and the right relationship to ought in the short and long term. 
and being oriented, having your cultivating, and it will find it's that way, having your system oriented in heart, ego, and in persona relations towards that. So, and then it's the, across the body. You change, the body's the most basic. So out of the vital systems, your pleasure, pain, your appetite of gut, shit, whether you're feeling basic safety, you have oxygen, you want to, you know, your appetite's hungry, want to fuck. Okay, what's that? And then your heart, that's a map that by the influence matrix. That's your pride, your shame, socio-emotional, your fundamental sense of relational value. What's getting activated on your abandonment, low relational value, you know, shit. Okay, then mind, justifier, then spirit, your core, you know, fundamental values, meaning and purpose in the world. So if you have, take out the flashlight, organize, body, mind, heart, I mean, body, heart, mind, spirit, bombs, <laughs> drop calm bombs to organize coherent integration across the various levels and get right relationship to the concept of God. So that's the path of psychological mindfulness I crafted. Mm -hmm. The path of psychological mindfulness, calm bombs, curiosity, acceptance, loving compassion, motivated to higher states of being, your body, your heart, your mind, and your spirit. Okay, it's a new ghost car. That's right. And that's on the ghost car side. Okay, and that's on the doer, knower. Hey, this is, if we want to craft a society, how do we do that? What, what's the wise identities, to use uh, Rob Scott's term again, wise identities we do want to bring to bear to get desired outcomes. Because uh -huh. awareness, just awareness as isness in and of itself is not all that there is. You know, yeah. and that's, but if we hold both of that, in right relation, we shift between those modes of being. I like this. Well, now you created a particular kind of architecture that I think leads to virtuous wisdom. Boom. Mic drop that thing. <laughs> That's fucking good, Greg. That's good. That's why I called. That's why I called. Mm. Relationship between the pure awareness. And just like Rob says, the love, the love of that, the love of experiencing that and being in that. And also to hone the struggler, to enlighten the struggler through an effective framework to understand himself and uh, playbook to deal with himself as all the different things come up. Oh, mm -hmm. nicely said. Yeah, it's very helpful. I feel like the calm balm gives me a framework to move forward in an ideal. It's the ghost car. It's a healthy, fast, efficient ghost car to race against. And the awareness gives me the outside perspective that allows a sympathy, a compassion for myself when I'm 
skidding off the track or when I'm trying or when I'm even beating the ghost car. Yeah, very helpful. I think it's helpful for other people as well. I appreciate it so much, Greg. I love talking with you. (laughs) I love talking with you too, dude. (laughs) And, you know, I was just reflecting to my friend Daniel last night that I remember you came on the Stoa the first time and I was like, whoa, like, damn, this guy's been doing shit. (laughs) And so we started talking. We had like a three or four conversations and then like, then you got connected with Verveke and then you got connected with Jordan Hall. It's like, oh yeah, that's like people are, other people are sniffing what Greg's stepping in. <laughs> and I'm so glad they are. I'm so glad that you've um, had an opportunity to collaborate with people of such a caliber that I know can push your own thinking and, and help you suss out what is, good and true and beautiful in your own work and 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 these last two years of connecting with this community has just been uh, nothing but glorious Uh, it it is really have been and i feel it both uh good in the societal sense and it's like there's really something powerful happening here that has some genuine hope and my little garden has just flourished and thing in the connections with the people you mentioned i mean especially the john connections um uh, you know i i I really do believe historical people will look back on that. Um, I don't know of any genuine history of uh, meta-theoretical syntheses uh, between two big picture systems that really have almost essentially ever happened. They, but Wilbur and uh, Bashkar tried to get together critical realism and integral, um, and there was certainly complementarity, but what John and I have is way more in complementarity. Uh, John and I have a lock and key relationship between his integrative cognitive science meta-theory and unified theory. That the complementarity of that. Um, well, we'll see what happens, but amazing. So grateful to know both of you. I would also love to talk to your friend, Rob Scott. So if you'd introduce us, that would be, Absolutely. I'd be super grateful because I'm curious to hear this. So. Let's uh, we'll do this again soon. All right, man. Love you, Greg. Thank you so much. Take care. See you brother. Very good. Okay, you guys, I hope that was helpful for you. I really appreciate Greg sharing his wisdom with me. Yeah, Greg will be back on the show here in no time. He's one of my favorite guests ever. And as you heard him say at the end, which is super validating for me, he says, Ari, I love talking to you. I fucking love talking to Greg, too. I love that guy. So head over to patreon.com slash in the air to become a supporter of this show for as little as $5 a month. My top tier patrons are getting free um, Airy in the Air gear, that's like buffs and hats and shirts and that kind of stuff, as well as 30-minute coaching call. So if that's something you're interested in, head on over there. Thanks for supporting the show. Spread it around. Let's blow this thing up. Okay, love you guys. Good luck with your lives. Enjoy it. Okay, you won't live forever. <laughs>